0: That's what I'm going to say I'm going to say it's all ruined, the internet is lame Except for podcasts that you can stream like Owls at Dawn Because that's where you can get good content to help you think critically
1: Damn dude, that should be our commercial
0: Yo, what is going down? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world, and decided to start a podcast where we can bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden Smith, and I'm out of breath.
1: <laughs> and I am Troy Polidori, and I got plenty, bro.
0: <laughs> cool, give me give me some mouth to mouth, then, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this week we're going to we said that we we're going to be doing Bill and Ted this week. That's going to be next week, I believe. Is that right,
1: Troy? Yeah, eventually.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to Bill and Ted. (laughs) Yeah, 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 we're going to get to Bill and Ted. But we had to kind of insert a little special episode because Troy just finished playing The Last of Us 2, and I had previously played it, and there's a lot of rich philosophical, emotional, personal, character development stuff. There's all kinds of stuff that we can get into. So we're going to kind of BS about this video game. If you don't know the game, don't run away. Um, there will be spoilers, so if you are tra- planning on like waiting, then just be aware of that. But uh, if you're not like a gamer or something like that, don't run away. We're going to talk about some of the interesting thematic themes, as we normally do. And so we're going to make it interesting for people who even aren't themselves... Gamers are inclined towards playing games, or that just particularly don't want to play this game. So, definitely stick around for that.
1: Plus, everybody knows gamers. So, if you want to be cool and show up to a Zoom party and talk to your gamer friend about all the philosophical themes in The Last of Us 2, you'll be a badass.
0: Absolutely. This is for you to be a badass. That's why we present this content.
1: Yeah, if you nerds want to know about basketball, about video games, about indie music, about weird manscaping, one-stop shop.
0: (laughs) That's right. About OnlyFans.
1: Awesome. We should say, though, that if you want to support us in a tangible way, you can go to patreon.com slash and There you can get access to bonus episodes, the ability to vote on our next patron-sponsored episode, which is going to be coming in the next few weeks, by the way. We're doing the Philosophy of Conspiracy Theories. Um, then you can go to patreon.com and get access to those and other goodies there. Sick,
0: man. Sounds good. Well, all right. So let's get things started. We got to prime the pumps. We got to flush the system. This is what we call the shitty minute. This is where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's been pissing us off over the past, past week or while or whatever. Both Troy and I... Uh, we write lists of things that we can talk about, which means that this—I don't know—are you just constantly like, ah, that could be a shitty minute. I'm gonna write that down. Is that kind of what you've got going on?
1: Not constantly, but yeah, I do keep a little list on my Google Keep on my phone of things <laughs> that might be a good topic. Little mm-hmm. little list of grievances mm-hmm. against ditto, the world.
0: <laughs> ditto. So uh, that's what we're gonna be doing now. It's Troy's turn. Troy, what is your shitty
1: minute? Oh, I should say though, my list of sticky leaves is longer than my list of shitty minutes. So oh, the oh, that's good. overall, on balance, better. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> even in these trying times. Yeah. Um, so I just mentioned that you know we're, we're your one stop shop for a few different domains of culture. That's uh, even though we're you know mainly kind of a philosophy and theory podcast, we get into that cultural stuff for once in a while, and so. I thought this was a pretty good time, given that it's the high points of the NBA season, right? It's the conference finals. And by the time this episode comes out, maybe it'll be um, the beginning of the finals, depending on how quickly things go. Thought I'd talk about that for a second. There is a, uh, there's a sort of discussion going on. If you don't know the context, the NBA um, shut down back in March when the lockdown happened. And um, they were the first sports league to shut down when one of their players, Rudy Gobert of the Utah Jazz, contracted the coronavirus. And then they went down. The whole league went down, or about two thirds of the league went down to Orlando to the Walt uh, Disney World Resort area. And they've been uh, they resurrected their season. They are all playing in the same building, uh, living in the same hotels, getting tested um, like three or four or five times a day. They have like wrist watches that tell them if their body temperature is increasing rapidly in a way that would speak to um, being pre symptomatic, right? Hmm um and so they've had that going on they're calling it i guess colloquially it's called the bubble although i think the nba the bubble that. they're calling it the campus or something lame like that but the bubble's way cooler um and it's been a rousing success no one in the entire they call bubble it, has they should call it the biodome <laughs> yeah and get like Polly shark get him out of retirement yeah 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 exactly who was the Baldwin? Was it Stephen Baldwin who was in that? Uh, yeah, Stephen. Stephen, Stephen. It was the worst Baldwin, whoever that is. <laughs> the evangelical one. Oh, is he really? Oh, dude, hardcore. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> Still better than Alec, though. Uh. Um, so there's been a rousing success. No one's gotten the coronavirus. The quality of basketball, I think, personally, from watching some of it, has been higher than normal, given that there's no traveling that's happening. Guys are very well-rested. They don't have a lot of distractions that you would have in major urban areas um, when you're traveling and stuff like that. You mean so they're,
0: not, they're not allowed to go out and get fucked up and
1: bang randos? Unless you're Lou Williams and you're just like, fuck, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> and, look what, and look what happened to his team. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm drinking up the salt there for sure. <laughs> um, so in that context, there's been discussion about whether or not there will be an asterisk. On whoever wins the championship this season, because of the abnormal circumstances and stuff like that, right? And this rubs me the wrong way. And here's why. So the whole idea of an asterisk, obviously, that's a you know that's a cultural thing. I I don't even know how far back the asterisk on a statistic to designate um, some abnormal circumstance or context when that starts, but clearly it's like mid 20th century at the latest, right? I'm guessing. Um, in in the NBA, it's most uh, sort of associated with Phil Jackson, who was the f- um, former coach of the Chicago Bulls during the the Michael Jordan area. If you watched The Last Dance, you know about Phil Jackson, his hijinks, what a great character he was. Um, and he said that the San Antonio Spurs in 1999 deserved an asterisk on their championship because it was the first of a few different lockout seasons that happened in the NBA where. Um, The owners, because there was no collective bargaining agreement that had been agreed to with the players, um, locked out the players from playing until a uh, collective bargaining agreement could be agreed to. So it's like the opposite of a strike, right? They're locking the workers out um, and holding back paychecks in order to sort of um, get them to acquiesce. And so they only played like 45, 50 games, something like that, and the Spurs Um, won the title. Tim Duncan was like in his second year and he was, I'm pretty sure he was finals MVP that year. Um, And they were a great team and it was weird because they ended up playing the New York Knicks in the finals and the Knicks were the eight seed in the East. Like they were the worst team in the playoffs um, who made it to the playoffs and they got to the finals and played the Spurs. So it's just a weird thing. Like that never happened before. Like that never happens. Not even close, right? Like I think a five seed is the worst seed to ever make it to the finals. And that was like the the Elijah One Rockets who were definitely better than a five seed, right? Um, you never see like an eight seed or like a, a, like a sub 500 or average team make it to the finals. That's weird. So Phil Jackson said they deserved an asterisk. And that's always been kind of associated with like a slight on a team, right? Like you didn't really win, right? Um, things were weird. You got lucky. And so people are talking about whether that's a similar a contextual marker should apply to this season. And that seems to me completely and utterly wrong. I think whoever wins the title this season, if they're going to have an asterisk, it should be because they deserve special recognition for what they've achieved. Players have been talking about the fact that the bubble, yeah, it's, it's leading to better quality basketball because of the rest and lack of travel and lack of distractions and stuff like that. But these guys i mean yeah you're being a millionaire so life is not that hard right but being locked away from your family and and with your basically your co-workers for three to four months straight and all you can do all day is focus on uh working and that's really it like you can maybe play video games and you can go on social media and stuff but you can't go out and do anything else like not even we have it that hard right compared to uh as far as lockdown like i can go to outside and, and go to a takeout from a restaurant and, um, you know, I can't go to a movie and I can't go to a concert and stuff like that. And that sucks, but it's way more restricted, um, what they're going through right now. And a lot of guys have said that it's really had an effect on the mental health, Paul George of the Clippers being one of them. And everyone hates Paul George and rightfully so. Um, but they shouldn't hit him for that. Right. Um, no one's being a, a chicken or a wuss or a pussy or whatever for, saying that their mental health is affected by being locked away from their family for months at a time. Um, Of course. And so, yeah. What? No, I I say, of course, of course that would. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, yeah, I think that whichever team wins this year deserves special recognition for that. They um, were able to overcome incredibly uh, mitigating circumstances that were very much not in their favor um, to come together and win. Uh, And this is not just me saying LeBron deserves um, recognition if he wins from people who are trying to take it away from him uh, before he even has a chance to win. Uh, I think this would be the case even if the Heat win. The Miami Heat, um, they were a five seed, or they are a five seed. And so that would be pretty historically um, unique for a five seed to make it to the finals and win a championship. It's only happened, I think, at least at least one time before with the Elijah one Rockets but even beyond that the Heat don't really have a superstar like Jimmy Butler is our best player and he's an all-star but um he's not like a top 10 player in the league at least not anymore um they're a team that that runs entirely on uh incredible defense and sharing the ball and great three-point shooting and um and great coaching and stuff like that so in, if they were to win, that would be, probably be the circumstance for people who want to put an asterisk on it because it's a weird circumstance or a weird outcome. Uh, but I don't think so. I think that whoever wins should be celebrated for uh, coming out of this whole thing on top. What do you yeah,
0: think? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me—yeah, I, I saw some dude on Twitter. How many, how many titles does LeBron have right now? Three? Three, yeah. Yeah, I, I saw someone say that LeBron will be the first person this year uh, in history to have three and a half titles. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and and the, the tweet went viral and everyone was kind of laughing at it and talking shit. Um, here's the problem, though. Like, So when you put an asterisk or when you talk about putting an asterisk, it's meant to, like you say, it's meant to signal some sort of aberration that devalues the accomplishment, right? It's supposed to add a qualification to be like, oh, well, but it's not as valid as normal because the conditions were different. Like you say, it shouldn't be a, an asterisk. It should be like a plus sign to be like, holy fuck, like – they did it while there was a global pandemic, while they were away from their homes, while they were dealing with the mental health issues. Um, absolutely. The, I, I, while there's the fucking racial issues that the NBA has been very active and participating in, right? Like they almost, they almost like striked. They almost went on like a full wildcat strike for the rest of the playoffs, right? So, like, there's a lot of shit that's going on that they're pushing through, Um, and not to be like, oh my god, let's praise these guys who are millionaires. I'm not trying to, like, coddle them. I'm saying that there's a lot of shit that, compared to regular seasons, actually shows you why this is a spectacular season, right? Like there's something spectacular about the accomplishment of winning in the bubble, right? But here's the thing. If you're going to put an asterisk, where does it stop? Do you put an asterisk against uh, LeBron's championship when Draymond got ejected and when there were the injuries in Golden State, you know, Golden State lost when they were up three to one? Do you put an asterisk there? You
1: you shouldn't put an asterisk. You should put a pair of balls because Draymond kicked them.
0: Because he kicked them in the balls, right. But I mean, do you put an asterisk (laughs) and you say, well, but they didn't really beat the full team, right? Do you put an asterisk in last year's title because Durant was injured? Do you put an asterisk before sports science was a thing or before teams were evenly matched when you just had fucking wilt on one team and bill russell on another team and they won fucking 30 titles in a row because it was just a bunch of white dudes who couldn't dribble with their heads up like come on
1: because there were eight teams yeah there were eight (laughs)
0: teams like do you put an asterisk do you put an asterisk against all of those things i mean fucking like where does it stop what is the criteria because the point is is that the championship kind of signifies you were the best team under these circumstances in this season uh during this time period right like like, I'm sorry, the asterisk doesn't do that. That's what the title does. So the asterisk is meant to kind of like somehow speak to an aberration. But I actually think that in these circumstances, in this context, considering all of these strange things that have gone on, these are the people who fought the war of attrition and came out on top, whoever they might be, right? And there's still a chance that the Boston Celtics win the title. So I will even celebrate them for no, their they'll, victory. No, they'll
1: deserve an asterisk. <laughs> But the other and I'll tell you why. But, but the other three teams. Win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. The, the one exception to the to the claim I'm making is that all the the titles of the Celtics, one of the sixties, have asterisks on them because there were eight teams.
0: Yeah, there were eight teams. Um, yeah. But
1: everything after that does not have an asterisk.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No. And i even the- their 2008 win with KG and Paul Pearson and and Rondo and Ray Allen. They get to have that one. Yeah. Whatever.
0: I don't know. I think there's an asterisk there because they were the first ones <laughs> to manipulate the whole loading up of the team, the big 3. That's the first time it was done. It's
1: you know, they stacked their players. That's kind of fucked up. So This would be this would be a good a good task for me to go through every title since like 1980 and see why there should be an asterisk.
0: Yeah. Well, you know what? I'm actually opposed to the idea of an asterisk anyway. Like, even think in baseball. People talk about, like, the Maguire uh, record, or they Mm -hmm. talk about the Bonds record and the Sammy Sosa records, and then that whole era should have an asterisk next to it. Well, here's the reason it shouldn't, because everyone was juicing, so the playing field was pretty level. So the accomplishments in their context are still stellar. Now, if you want to say, do we compare Barry Bonds to Babe Ruth? Well, first of all, how do you make those intergenerational comparisons anyway? That's not the point of records, right? I don't think it's to be able to be like, is somehow Barry Bonds the absolute equivalent of Babe Ruth or of uh, the Roger Maris record for the single season or whatever, right? No, the point is, is this, what this does is this really reveals the difficulty of using kind of mathematical calculation to make those types of value judgments but i just don't think that asterisks are a useful way of delineating and making the value judgments about he was worthy he was good he was the best i just don't think that an asterisk is useful and i really don't even think that maybe statistics are that useful towards that end but um i think it definitely at least shows us the, kind of the difficulty of using those types of quantification methods
1: i'm just waiting for you to say numbers don't exist well they don't fucking just exist be a pure quantitative nihilist.
0: i am one fuck <laughs>
1: <laughs> no but i agree with you totally um although i will say i think intergenerational comparisons like in baseball where statistics are are much more much more accurate or represent what actually happens as an outcome on the field in a way that basketball doesn't quite get um i think intergenerational comparisons have a, a role but they shouldn't be in terms of pure outcomes like in terms of like a, like total um outcomes like most home runs or mm. highest batting average or those are just Antiquated statistics, right? And they're obviously not weighted according to competition, right? I mean, if you want to compare McGuire, Sosa and Barry Bonds to Aaron Judge today, right? Do so in relation to um, the the sort of weighted average, right? So when Pedro Martinez has an ERA of like 1.9 in the middle of the steroid era in 2000, that was like one and a half runs lower than the next guy, (laughs) <laughs> 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 That's how absurd absurdly good he was. Now, if Clayton Kershaw has a 1.9 ERA, ERA the next guy's like 2.05, right? They're pretty close. Now that obviously Clayton Kershaw's still great, but that doesn't really tell you via weighted averages um, how much better he was than the competition. Right? Also, it's so, hard to
0: say because Babe Ruth wasn't wasn't batting against Pedro Martinez, whereas Barry Bonds was. Right, Babe Ruth was batting against. Like a guy that I'm sure was decent and was athletic, but
1: <laughs> but it was like that's like me going to a fucking who went just down to five beers in the duck. Yeah, he had yeah. just
0: down five beers. Uh, he probably <laughs> was out till five in the morning, you know, at some sort of fucking speakeasy bar. You know, I mean, like it's a it's very difficult. That's why I think the intergenerational comparisons are so hard. Like I don't want to invalidate, uh, like. Wilt Chamberlain or Bill Russell's dominance. But again, it's a very different era. So the intergen- intergenerational comparisons to me just don't... I'm just not into them. I just I just don't find them very useful. I kind of... Am, I'm, I'm just tired of them.
1: Yeah, the, the whole impetus doesn't really even seem to be like how good was this guy relative to his competition versus how good is this guy relative to his competition. It seems to me more like, um, especially in basketball, just to like who do I like more, really? Yeah. Like, who can I post-facto... Uh, justify as the goats which is in one sense just all fun and games and so who cares right and sometimes there's has some been good you know um like fire takes on that stuff but like 95 percent of it is just horseshit and no one cares i'm gonna say but there they should care there
0: used to be some good fun jovial possibilities for having that kind of who's the greatest like lebron kobe Jordan, Kareem, whatever I'm going to say now in the age of the internet just because I'm in a grumpy mood this morning I'm going to say <laughs> I'm gonna say the internet has ruined that and now you don't get that because now it's just who can throw out the flamiest take and who can say the most sensationalist thing and then who can just denigrate the other person for being an idiot because you don't clearly see that LeBron is the greatest athlete that's ever played and so that's why he's the greatest because he can do more physically than Jordan and then the other person is like no you're just a fucking idiot because It's about winning. And then the other person has a different set of criteria. So it's just about shitting on the person in an age of sensationalism. So that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to say it's all ruined. The internet is lame except for podcasts that you can stream (laughs) like Owls at Dawn because that's where you can get good content to help you think critically. Damn, dude. That should be our commercial. I just made a commercial. Someone cut it for us, please.
1: And you know what? Just to kind of wrap this up in a bow, and I'm sure you'll agree with this because this is kind of an Austin-ish take that kind of stuff really takes away from just appreciating what's good and valuable about the thing itself. Mm. Constantly talking about whether it's better than something else and some abstract, um, via some abstract measurement that you haven't even really put together in a rational and coherent way in the first place. Right. Um, it just takes away from like, dude, appreciate what's there. It's fun as hell to watch. Like basketball right now is really quality. Mm. It's great. The games have been wonderful. Um, it sucks that there's the middle of the semester, that's happening instead of you know early in the summer because can't watch all of it but uh, <laughs> it's been it's been it's been really great and so stop focusing on you know prognosticating about legacies and who's the goats and trying to you know uh, set off your fire take and just appreciate the quality stuff that's out there because it's great Parliament um you deserve
0: good things okay
1: yeah especially when it's basketball then you yeah. actually deserve it
0: yeah 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 so Enjoy those good things.
1: Yeah, I'm with you
0: though, brother. No asterisk, plus sign, better accomplishment. LeBron gets an extra title. So he doesn't just have four if he wins this year. He actually has four and three quarters.
1: (laughs) All right, so should we talk about some Last of Us?
0: Yeah, let's talk about it.
1: Let's move from one domain of culture to another.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. So, okay, we should probably give, for people who don't know, The Last of Us was a game that came out in 2013, um, produced by Naughty Dog, uh, directed and written by Neil Druckmann and his team, and it was a a kind of universal sensation, critical acclaim from, from the critics and then also from gamers. Pretty much everybody fell in love with it. And it is a very kind of simple story, but with lots of layers. It's a post-apocalyptic world. Um, I mean, well, how do you want to say You You're very good at these kinds of descriptions. Give the the synopsis of game one. Because we have to talk yeah. about game one before we can get into game two, which just came out this year, and that's the reason. But yeah, give the, give the synopsis for game one.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right that it was uh, get universal acclaim from both critics and gamers. It's kind of the game that nobody hates, because it's just so obvious that it was... Utterly unique um, for its time, uh, not in terms of its plot, because its plot, as you said, it's, it's very simple and straightforward, and actually cliche, right? Post-apocalypse, yeah. because of, uh, in this case, it's a um, like an airborne uh, kind of virus that creates zombie-like creatures, but they're more like you know infected by a virus, um, and that sort of sets off the apocalypse. And then you deal with you know the cliche Walking Dead style: the humans who remain are actually the greatest enemy. More so than the infected, right? Um, and so that all sounds kind of boring and cliche, and it's been done before and done to death, right? No pun intended. Um, mm-hmm. But the the uniqueness of the game is both its its form, in terms of it was it's extremely cinematic, right? Extremely it's a little bit shorter than a lot of other games um, that are you know probably like RPGs and some bigger AAA games are like 40, 50 hours. This is like a twenty hour game. Um, And that's in line with like the Uncharted games, which Naughty Dog also did, um, which actually are much shorter than that, but uh, they're more cinematic in the same way. Uh, And then also the writing uh, is top-notch. It's, you know, it's the kind of thing you would be impressed to see in a film. You'd actually probably wouldn't even think of uh, anything but maybe HBO having this quality of of writing and acting. Uh, It's very, very emotive um, and emotionally affecting to the point where, even though the story is very simple and the uh, the main characters are a father who loses his daughter in the beginning of the apocalypse and then sort of adopts uh, a teenage girl who's orphaned and um, has a secret, uh, which I guess we can say, you know, spoilers are galore here that she's immune to the virus. And so she has to be taken to a group that can help produce a, a vaccine to save humanity with it. And these two characters, it's a kind of classic, not biological, but father-daughter type situation, and you just utterly fall in love with them. It's impossible not to. Mm-hmm. Um, the rapport is fantastic. They're sarcastic mm-hmm. with one another. The acting, the voice acting is, is phenomenal. And even the, even the voice acting, the actual like facial acting, especially in the second game, mm-hmm. um, I thought was... was I, I couldn't believe how well they were able to get body language into a game. Because that's like the last thing in, in video games that hasn't really gotten up to snuff yet. The, the body language is not able to be expressed in a way that's not stilted. But this game had it, man. Mm. Um, I don't know if you felt the, the same way about that, but mm-hmm. I, I felt like I noticed it constantly.
0: Mm-hmm. Totally, totally. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's an immersive game, but I think part of the reason it's so immersive is because of its ability to elicit empathy, right? And mm. one of the ways that we elicit empathy is through body language and things like that. So absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And that was the big, um, the sort of big effect of the first game, um, because it traded so much on this empathy, and you love these characters so much, you understand their stories, you sympathize with them, you understand the reasons for why they do what they do, right? Yes. Whether they're good or bad, ultimately, whether you would judge them objectively as being right or wrong, you understand their reasons, and so you can sympathize um, because of that reason. That's right. And then the yeah. the first game ends up with ends off with a really controversial. Um, ethical dilemma where the main character Joel who's the father figure uh, ends up sort of taking the young teenage girl Ellie away from the group that's going to develop a vaccine because they'd have to kill her to develop it and he lies to her and tells her that they couldn't develop a vaccine uh, even though they could and he actually just shit canned a bunch of people um, to uh, steal her away yeah, so he actually
0: he actually breaks into the operating room while she's unconscious being prepped for surgery. He kills, he takes out the doctors, grabs her, um, and it's important to know that he kills the doctors. Um, he grabs Ellie, runs away, um, kills one more key person on the way out, and then drives off, and then he tells her the lie. And that's how the first game ends, right? Is him having fed her this lie, and her kind of dealing with some survivor's guilt, and kind of like a a lack of purpose that she felt like maybe she had something that she could offer the world that she was going to you know be useful to to save humanity um and joel the reason it's also so i think impactful is that because of his hardness of losing his daughter in the opening moments of the game the it's you the difficulty of him letting her in is something that you really work through throughout the course of the first game and he finally lets her in and so that decision at the end is like the ultimate father's decision and I think that's what's so interesting there's something about his personal individual choice that superseded the quote utilitarian good right and that is a really interesting ethical dilemma for the game to kind of leave you on because you probably are conflicted. Rationally, I could say, God, man, that's a selfish decision. He did it for his own emotional well-being or because his own concern and care. Also, you could say, I like Ellie. I want her to survive. We've just bonded with her. I want to see her story grow because she's a wonderful young woman. as She's kind of like turning now into this young woman, dealing with her own sort of like romantic longings. It turns out that she's uh, she's got a partner in the game. Um uh, which again is expanded on in, in the next game, and so you're kind of also rooting for her, but at the same time you're like, but fuck, man, that means that humanity is going to continue to be ravaged by this fucking pandemic, this outbreak of these ravenous zombie-like monsters running around. So it's a fucking it's a to leave you on that is a really interesting way to set up the second game.
1: Yeah, and I think you know uh, one factor that made that game so successful, and you've mentioned it. Um, we talk about games being immersive usually what we mean is something about like the combination of the visuals and the sound design and the action makes you feel like you're there. That's the phrase we use, right? We talk about movies being the same way, right? Like a Dunkirk. That right. gets talked about as, I feel like I'm in the cockpit. Right? It's immersive in that way. Right. This game, these games obviously have that, right? The sound design, especially in the second game, is remarkable, I think. Um, but the immersion is even more layered than that. It's like ethical immersion, You become, Mm. like, the reasons the characters have for doing what they're doing become your reasons, in part because you control them. So there's this really interesting ethical interplay between um, the way you respond to what the characters do. that I thought the first game handled in a really deft way and then kind of cashed it out at the end by challenging you, right? It was very careful with you through the whole game to then challenge you at the end, right? yeah. And I'll get to that why I think it's important because the second game, as much as I love it and I think it's great, I think it, it did um, possibly overplay its hand with that ethical kind of immersion. Not mm-hmm. with me necessarily, but with sort of the expectations it would have with gamers at large. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can get to that in a minute, but I think that, 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 that layering of immersion is more than pretty much any movies ever going to do for you. Right? Let's take. You can let's never take, be as immersed in a movie as you can in a game where you're controlling the characters and you're sort of inhabiting their reasons more than just their hands.
0: And, and then we can, I think, just take one step back, back and ask even a, a bigger question: Is there a sort of moral responsibility that the the producers of these types of immersive experiences have to nurture the the people whose hands, um, or, or the, to nurture the people in whose hands? Wait, what, what am I trying to say? You know what I mean? Uh, who who have placed themselves in the hands of these story creators, you know?
1: Yeah, that's exact. That's exact question that I came out of it with. And that I'm, I'm still conflicted and I can see both sides of it. So I kind of, yeah, it's definitely a thing I want to talk about with you and see if you share any of those um, conflicted feelings about it. But really quick, before we get into stuff like that, let's just kind of recap the second game. So yep. the second game just came out this year. After, what, seven years of... of development and obviously huge huge hype about it because it's one of the most beloved the first games one of the most beloved games ever made uh not only very popular but obviously beloved in the sense of people identify with it right uh the characters are 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 beloved more than uh at at the level of like the greatest beloved characters in like literature and movies and stuff Mm. um uh, more so than any other video game that I can think of. Uh, people may identify with like superheroes and stuff like that, but they don't, I don't think they love them in the same way that people love Joel and Ellie. Hmm. And so the game starts out by just fucking you right in the face. Um, by the first hour or so, Joel gets his head beaten by a golf club. Um, by, it turns out, the daughter of the uh, doctor. Uh, what's a vaccinologist? What's a doctor who develops vaccines? Hmm. Yeah. Epidemiology, ep- epidemiologist. Epidemiologist. Oh, yeah, epidemiologists actually develop vaccines. I don't they know. study like diseases.
0: Oh, yeah. I don't, I don't know. know. Whatever the He's subclass a, of epidemiology a is. A the fucking surgeon. Vaccines. I don't know what he was.
1: <laughs> um, the daughter of, of that doctor who was going to operate on on Ellie and hopefully develop a vaccine um, hunts down Joel after about four years, I think. Yep. And... Uh, finally finds them and then beats him to death with a golf club right in front of Ellie uh, as she's trying to save him. And it's gut-wrenching. Um, it's probably the part in the game where I, I most think they uh, abrogated their responsibility. Not by killing Joel. I think that was necessary for the story they were going to tell. Um, but by doing it in this its incredibly violent and disturbing way. Like the glee on the girl's name who kills him is Abby, uh, the glee on her face when she's doing it, I think may, is supposed to convince you that she is pure evil, that she has gone beyond any possibility of being reasoned with as like a moral agent. <laughs> um, and that may not be true, right? But it certainly comes off that way. And it's one of the first things you experience with her character. Yeah. And but, well, unless- before you even find out, what her reasons are,
0: right? Well, well. Let's add let's add another layer to this, though. So before that, though, we're introduced to Abby. Uh, so yeah, so we don't really know exactly what her mission is. You can kind of piece it together, but we're, we're we don't really get the kind of specifics of it yet. But early on in the game, it switches gameplay to where we're controlling Abby, and this is what I think is really one of the subtle elements of the game. We learn how to play the game, like the basic controls of running and jumping and shuffling along ledges and things like that you learn that through the eyes of Abby so there's almost like this childlike childlike instruction into the world of the game through Abby which I think also courts our investment into her as a character and then there's a bit where you actually then have to try to get her to be saved from uh, from you know like not just the infected but all kinds of other things and then two of the the quote protagonist characters, Joel and Tommy, they help her escape and you again are invested in her survival. So there's a sense in which you have already invested in her character and you've brought her character to the events that eventually lead her to murder Joel. So you're also complicit in the murder of Joel, right?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's it's so minimal. You only control her for a little bit of time. So I don't know that you're really fully immersed yet. And like I was saying before, the immersion that the game does a special job with is the kind of like ethical or rational immersion where you inhabit the reasons the characters have, not just their actions, not just like their pure behaviors, right? And you only really do that with right. Abby in the beginning. Uh, a little bit in terms of like running away from danger, but that's pretty minimal, right? Um, so yeah, I, I do understand though that they – I, th- I think the reason for controlling her early in the game is just so that that's not as much of a surprise when the middle of the game happens and you control her for a long ass time, um, which still, of course, pissed a lot of people off. And I think understandably. I so. think
0: I think it's I think it's also though so that you're like, man, I was fucking complicit in
1: bringing her to Joel. Like I was part of that. Yeah, but I mean, you don't know why, so I don't I don't know that I think the complicit stuff happens a little later when you know why things are happening. When you fully are at the same level of knowledge okay, yeah. that the character is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 You think you're just more surprised more than anything um, when you find out that Abby gets led to to Joel and then, and then you know, brutally murders him. Um, and I do wonder, we can come back to this, but I think it'll make more sense in the end perhaps and judging the, whole, the work as a whole. But I do wonder why the choice to have her brutally murder him with a golf club instead of just shooting him in the head. Um
0: I I think it's because the 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 enjoyment factor. You're absolutely right, and I think this is so important for us to understand is because she is out for like unmitigated revenge. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, not 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 just her father, right? Punishment.
0: Yeah, punishment. Right, right, right. Punishment. So I think I think that's part of it. Is there is a sense in which I think there is a sense in which that enjoyment factor that you talked about which later we start to see is quote justified from her perspective. But I think we're supposed to really understand like, um, I think we're really supposed to understand like how deep she was hurt. And then how some people respond differently. Some people fucking break and she had a break, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if it's a break. Uh, it seems much more like it was a fantasy that was enacted, um, more than anything. Mm. But yeah, we, we can come back to that cause it'll maybe make more sense later on. So, um, yep. She kills him, uh, takes off, leaves Ellie alive, even though Ellie's there. Um, so she's not, you know, the I guess the most brutal you could possibly be. Um, and then Ellie, of course, uh, and Joel's brother uh, set off separately, but eventually join up to go and find Abby in Seattle. Um, they do so. And then the second that they finally meet, the whole game switches, goes back three or four days, and you... Uh, take over Abby to relive all of the events that Ellie just lived, um, getting to uh, Seattle and then trying to find Abby. And so all the people that Ellie has to uh, kill and torture to find out where Abby is in Seattle, you see basically Abby go through finding out that all of the people that she lives with and works with and cares about, um, and especially her her best of friends are uh, killed by Ellie. And so, the point being, of course, as you're saying, uh, this empathic connection that you have with this character who you control and whose reasons you understand and whose reasons you internalize as being your own reasons as you sort of incorporate their personality while you're immersing yourself in the game um, comes to as incredible conflict, right? The conflict in the first game happens at the very end, right? And it leaves you with the conflict. Here, the conflict is building almost the entire game, and especially during all of the moments that you're controlling Abby. And it's just, it's exhausting, right, to have this level of of rational conflict where there's points in the game where you want to stop playing. And a lot of people complained about this, that um, there's points where Abby and Ellie meet when they first uh, fight and you, or not when they first fight, but uh, later on, you're Abby and you're controlling her fighting Ellie,
0: Right. And you're forced. You're and you're forced to try to win. I know a lot of people they they were like, Oh, I'm just gonna let Ellie kill me or whatever. I tried it a couple of times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then you can't. You are forced. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but you're forced to try to win against the, the, the the young woman that you have just spent, I don't know. 40 hours of gameplay with through the two games that you have come to love and care about and now you have to try to actually kill her right conceivably
1: yeah and i know a lot of people were upset about that and considered it kind of a failure that if you want ellie to win still then the game hasn't made you empathize with abby enough and i think that's just wrong um they knew what they were doing and they I, i have to think they knew what they were doing was gonna get this kind of reaction I haven't read a lot of what Agreed. Druckmann and other people have, have said in response to the the criticisms. Um, I know that some of the criticisms are like, you know, transphobic and there's a you know a minor character in the game who's um who's trans and that becomes a bit of a plot element and there's some like people complaining about anti-Christian propaganda and something all that's just bullshit. Is Lev trans is Lev trans or androgynous and is there a difference? Yeah, I mean I I don't even know. It's 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 kind of a hand-fisted yeah. part of the plot. Like it's just kind of shoehorned in there in a way that I don't think was super well done. But that wasn't the criticism, yeah. the criticism. Uh, and that's a fair criticism to make, right? I think some of the trans community probably made that criticism, and that's 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 totally legitimate. Um a, a lot of yeah. criticism just comes from, you know, like gamer-gay people and men's rights activists and stuff like that. And that should just be dismissed, obviously, right? But there are legitimate criticisms. Mm. But I think it's appropriate for people to have misgivings about um how they're being treated in this sort of compact they have with gaming companies, right? Because it is mm. true, I think, that movies can challenge you in a way that's morally responsible to a pretty extended degree. Like you can watch a Gaspar Noé film and you know feel like, oh my god, I feel like I'm being like morally violated by watching this movie, right? Uh, and then come out of yeah. it and not be that offended, right? You have to get to the level of like the Cuties movie. On Netflix right, where it's like little children being sexualized to where people will get really upset about it anymore um, and I feel like they're being violated or being complicit for watching it um, but games are different because as I said it's not just the the, like the physical and emotional immersion it's the like rational immersion like the characters in a really good game with a really good storytelling you their reasons become your reasons and you internalize um, their inner state in a really intimate mm. way I think especially in Last of Us And Mm. that can feel very violating when you are forced, coerced, to do things in a game that go against the deepest, um, most intimate reasons you have for everything you want to do as these characters. And uh, Mm. so I understand why people reacted to that the way they did. I'm generally okay with being challenged in that way and I guess maybe just Mm. don't really internalize and, and immerse myself in the characters in the way some other people do so i was okay with it even though i did want ellie to win and wanted abby to kill herself and then die every time um but i understand why people reacted the way they did and i think i really hope okay the drug and company were understanding of that fact
0: let's okay. let's return to this let's finish the summary real quick because i think that's that's really interesting but fin- let's finish the summary real quick
1: real quick okay where do we leave off
0: Uh, So Ellie and Abby, they fight. Um, You're forced to try to beat Ellie as Abby. Um, The fight ends in a draw. Uh, We kind of fast forward to a year later, let's say. You're back with Ellie. Ellie is now on like a farm kind of thing with her girl, Dina, who we didn't talk about. But that's also kind of a really big like. B storyline with her girl Dina and uh, Dina was pregnant previously from a guy that she had been in a previous relationship with but Ellie and Dina actually fall in love and then they decide to raise this baby because the dude gets killed um, which also fucking sucks Uh, he seemed like (laughs) a kind of you kind of fall in love with him a little bit too he seems like a cool dude Um, and so everyone just gets fucking taken out in this Um, but I think the pregnancy issue is also important to understand because Ellie knows that Dina is pregnant through the course of the game right? I mean, she finds out like maybe halfway through, but she she knows that she's pregnant. So there's this concern, this this mothering, this this what are we gonna do? This uh uh, am I gonna like help you kind of raise this 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 child? Or are we gonna start a family kind of thing? But then that means that when she kills one of Abby's friends, uh, we find out also that that friend was pregnant. So Ellie just kills uh, a pregnant mother, which also has I think more morally ambiguous consequences because then we need to think like we, the gamers, are like, fuck, we just killed, you know, we were, again, we're complicit in the killing of this pregnant woman. Um, And so, again, there's more layers. Like, so does does that mean that Ellie's a bad person? Like, in her thirst for vengeance and in this cycle of vengeance or of violence that she's kind of being pulled by or compelled by, um, does she violate certain ethical and moral laws that would make us misalign with her, right? And then realign, maybe, potentially with Abby, which I think also kind of, like, ...adds to some of the layers of complexity. So we can talk about that. But, uh, so we fast forward to a year. We're on this farm now after that draw of that fight with Abby. Um, And so Ellie and Dina and the little one are on the farm. And it turns out that you know Ellie is not over the trauma of Joel. She gets convinced by Tommy to track down Abby finally and finish the job. They need to take Abby out. So Ellie decides... She makes the hard decision, even though Dina tells her not to. She makes the hard decision. She leaves domestic life, and she goes out one final time to search for Abby. She tracks Abby down. Abby's been taken prisoner uh, through circumstances. Uh, In Santa Barbara, we
1: should add, which, I mean, everyone wants to have a vacation in Santa Barbara, so you can understand that.
0: Fucking ain't right, man. So they're in Santa Barbara, California, and um, Abby's been taken prisoner, and she's actually sort of being crucified, like she's going to be fucking killed, her uh, and her little sidekick, uh, Lev, the sort of androgynous trans person that we talked about previously uh they're basically hung up to be crucified to die uh on the beach so i guess if you're going to die and be crucified it could be a worse place but anyway <laughs> uh,
1: that's like ellie. a monty python look on the brighter side of life <laughs> yeah i'm being crucified but i'm on the center of Barbara beach so it could be worse
0: <laughs> so ellie finds her and pulls her down saves her um, only to initiate one final fight to decide that, that this is the final fight. So this is the fight to the death. So she compels Abby to fight her, even though Abby's kind of reluctant to fight at that point. Plus, she's also super weak and sick and everything like that because she's been, like, hanging up on this cross for how who knows how long. Um, or it's not a cross. It's a fucking stick. Um, see my fucking Christian influence. I can't even get it, away it I think a cross, the crucifixion. Dude. Has to be. I'm pretty sure it was a cross. Oh, was it?
1: Yeah, I, mean, she's, I thought it was just. She, a, I she thought doesn't it have was nails just... in her hands. She's tied up in a rope, but yeah, it's a cross. Oh, it, it is
0: like a cross. Okay, cool. Yeah, so she's uh, so she pulls her down off the cross. I don't know. Is there supposed to be some sort of Christian like complexity here? Who knows? Um, but like forgiveness. Are we supposed to think about forgiveness and redemption <laughs> and things like that? Like maybe yeah, redemption. Yeah, definitely, right? So okay, so she pulls Abby down uh, and then compels her into one final fight and Ellie gets the better hand of her and she has the option to kill Abby, finally ending it once and for all and she lets her go. And then after she lets her go, she goes back to the farm where Dina and her were starting their life. Dina's gone. Um, She's left her the kind of letter that says that she's gone or whatever. Ellie sits down Uh, Picks up a guitar that Joel had given her at the beginning of this game, um, starts to kind of play a little bit with some mangled fingers because her fingers got bit off (laughs) by Abby in the final fight. She tries to play the guitar. She's all alone, and she recalls this final conversation that she had had um, (laughs) with, with Joel the day before he's murdered where... Um, What we didn't say at the beginning of this game is that there's some tension between Joel and Ellie that emerges in game two And it's because Joel eventually tells Ellie that he had lied to her at the end of game one So Ellie's mad swears that she's never gonna talk to him ever again, but at this point She's sitting there playing the guitar now at the end of the game And we get a flashback to a scene that we hadn't seen before with Joel and her talking and Ellie promising to try to forgive Joel For lying, saying that she kind of understands the decision. And it's them having this really lovely, let's say, bonding father-daughter kind of moment. And so you then are like, oh my god, that's what makes his murder. I just got chills. I'm not even kidding. I have chills (laughs) right now. That's what makes his murder with her looking on, the brutal murder, even more gut-wrenching because they were on a path of their own personal redemption. And that got taken away and so there's no finality. And that's where the game ends. Her remembering that conversation Boom, game over. Naughty Dog credits roll. Neil Druckmann sits there, puts his feet up on the table and says, fuck yeah, enjoy my masterpiece.
1: <laughs> and, and I will say, I mean, I know that if, if anyone's listening out there and is, is, is you know, a gamer and, and really didn't like this game, there are sort of plot reasons to to think this is maybe somewhat less than a masterpiece some of the Abby storyline with the fights and the, the Lev Yara stuff is I think kind of ham-fisted as I said earlier. It's kind of shoehorned in there as a as a pure means to an end to make Abby sort of reflect on herself and think about if, if she wants to be part of this like basically paramilitary group um, that's engaging in genocide. Um, and so that's a little bit I think was a little bit problematic and, and could have been done better. But in terms of compared to well others. they don't give
0: you they, they don't they don't give you enough time to really develop that moral conscience and to really reflect on that right it's just kind of like it, it comes across as they save her and then she all of a sudden is on their side immediately right rather than her really starting to question the morality of this group that she's aligned with
1: right exactly which I think probably could have been done better but at the expense of spending more time with Abby which maybe they felt like they couldn't really get away with because it's already a lot of time. Um, yeah. So I understand. And, and, and that said, that and some other, you know, there's obviously lots of um, coincidences of characters meeting up and stuff like that, that, that people can get kind of like, you know, roll their eyes at and stuff. But as a, as a technical achievement, this thing is is bar none a masterpiece. I mean, it is the sound design and the visuals and the acting and the, and the writing and the dialogue. It's just, it's absolutely incredible. Um, and, and in all the yeah. ways that, that the critics um, will say that it is. That said, yeah. I mean, do you want to go back to this? Uh, yeah, kind of ethical stuff.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely.
1: Yeah, I think that there's there's so much um, deep stuff going on here, and like you said, the the ending um, with the final uh, flashback between Ellie and Joel, and her basically forgiving him, and and him being able to to feel that weight lifted off his shoulders of, of being forgiven. I thought was it's it's such a beautiful moment it was such a great way to end it um one thing that i'm reflecting on and i thought about this immediately after it was over is i'm never going to play this game again mm. like the first last of us i've played twice i played it again mm-hmm. uh a few months ago just in kind of um locked on first started actually uh, both because it kind of seemed appropriate given the whole infection thing um and that's, oh, that's a, when i played it too yeah. <laughs> i played it in i, I played it in march <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and it wasn't as good as the first time i played it just because a lot of that game is just going to be the first time you play it it's just so shockingly uh realistic and immersive you're not going to get as much to say the second time around but it was still great i still really enjoyed playing it the second time around i i don't think i can ever go back to this game again i don't think that the value of it will be there anywhere near hmm. as much the second time around do you feel the same way I did when I first finished,
0: but I have over... So I'm working on the Wisecrack video script on The Last of Us right now. Okay. And and so my mind has been thinking about this game a bit, and I would say over the last couple of weeks, I've had a little bit of a pull to want to play again. Hmm. I'm not going to. I'm not going to because I want to wait a little bit. I want to forget more. But I can see myself kind of getting to the point where I want to relive some of these difficult ethical, uh, ethical considerations again. Yeah. Cause I'm a little bit more removed from my initial shock and, and, and the, the affects that came over me after completing it, that now I'm kind of, I can see a point where I I'm totally with you, but I can see now that I'm around a different corner,
1: so to speak. Yeah. I'm curious to see if, if that will have a a larger effect down the line for people, but here's my hypothesis. Um, okay. So, I kind of already mentioned the premises here, so it shouldn't be um, too new of an idea. But the first game, I think, has this this really unique feature of the kind of ethical, rational immersion with the characters, right? It's so unique to Last of Us, and then it builds up this trust with you, but by building up the trust between Joel and Ellie, who you both have deep affection for, right? And you both kind of you have it both of them, um, in this special way. And so when it challenges you at the end by creating this. This is like really sharp uh, moral dilemma and, and challenging whether or not uh, you can really um, sympathize truly and fully with Joel. It does so at the very end of the game and it earns that, right? It's like being a really mm-hmm. close friend with someone and then they challenge you by doing something wrong. Well, right. if they've been a great friend for a long time, then you can deal with that because you have this deep abiding affection for them. And so you can kind of work through the issues in a way that you wouldn't if it was someone who was just an acquaintance, right? You might just be like, I'm just not talking to this person again. They suck. The second game already has this whole first game built up, this whole like deep affection for the characters built up from the first game. And over seven years of people lauding and praising it and loving these characters, right? And, and waiting for the second game for so long and not knowing if it was ever going to actually happen. um, And then it just like one by one in major points in the game starting from the very beginning just like slaps you in the face right it doesn't really build the trust in the same way the first game does with the player and it, it's done so purposely right it's not because it, the game was like lacking or the creators were you know, not attuned to um the dynamics of the first game they wanted to i think subvert that by challenging you at every step of the way and just like Really Mm. saying, are you really going to keep doing this, right? We're going to make you watch Joel get murdered by the character that you were controlling, right? We're going to make you hunt down Ellie as Abby. We're going to make you try to kill her. We're going to, and for me even, and I haven't heard a lot of people say this, but when Ellie's at the farmhouse contemplating whether or not to leave and and, uh, follow Tommy's wishes and go hunt down Abby again, I wanted to just say no, right? Mm. I wanted it to end by Ellie just saying, I give up. I was hoping that was going to be yeah. the end of the game because I was hoping that she would realize this is not worth it. No one's going to come out better for this. Abby's even mm. changed. It seems like a little bit, right? She's not this pure evil, um, you know, menacing demon that you thought she was. Just let it go, right? That would be the great, a great way for her character to develop and end. And it couldn't because it's still pushing this. Um, you know, defects of human nature thing when it comes to to vengeance and, and desire for punishment and stuff like that. And it was just exhausting to have to be forced to do that and to be forced to go hunt down Abby and I didn't want to, right? Just I wanted to give up. Mm. Enjoy Santa Barbara, man. Go get like a, go get a Corona and sit on the beach, right? There's probably some in some refrigerator somewhere. In Santa well, Barbara. and
0: and and we're rooting, we're rooting for her and Dina in this new baby to... To start this life, it's life versus death, and I don't mean that like like in the sense that it's it's a life versus death decision, but it kind of is in the sense that are you going to choose um, this life uh, this farmhouse with this bountiful field, growing crops, again, vitality, vitality. You've got this new baby, this infant. You've got this new loving relationship with Dina, a character that you've also come to grow and root for. So again, you've got life and love and growing and vitality and beauty. And then on the other hand, you've got the cycle of vengeance. You've got revenge. You've got death. You've got anger. You've got violence. You've got evil. And so it's the the choices couldn't be more stark. And the way that they the way that they set that up with this family life on the one hand versus um revenge for the death of your father figure on the other hand is is i think a really potent dilemma to be placed between right because they're 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 two completely opposed choices
1: yeah and you want so bad for her to make the quote unquote, right life. decision for her happiness right and for her that's right. loved ones happiness
0: and i think and for dina and for the baby because you're thinking man make make the bigger decision cuz you could die you could die and then also what does it get ultimately you kill abby and then after abby then someone else is going to come after you because you just killed abby right so it's like we we've, we've already been thrown into the sort of like compulsion the compulsivity the pathology if you will of this cycle of violence so that's why you think that if she can choose life that that's the, the point at which the cycle stops, right?
1: Right, but here, here's the end of my hypothesis. and This is why I think it's a little bit different than the like cycle of violence stuff, which is clearly a constituent of the, the theme of this game. right? It's a sub-theme, I think. Um, but I, yeah, think it's totally. more, I think it's more than that. And it goes back to this sort of ethical immersion kind of stuff that I'm talking about. The game, I think, ultimately comes down to the idea that trauma is unavoidable. If you have it, right, if you suffered in such a way that you have this sort of traumatic, uh, lingering, traumatic, vestigial thing going on afterwards. You can't just pretend it's not there. You want to, but you can't. And I think this game is kind of saying, look, if you want to love these characters, if you want to care about them, if you want to immerse yourself in them to the point where you're inhabiting like their reasons, you can't do that only in the good times. That means you have to experience and immerse yourself in the trauma too. And that means understanding, trying to at least understand why they can't do the right thing, why they can't let it go, right? And that's, wow, that's difficult, man. That's like, I don't know that it's hard enough for anybody to do that within the person that they love, let alone like a fictional character, right? And so I think that's part of a big part of why people have been, a lot of people have been so reactive against it. Um, And I understand that because it's a huge challenge and I don't blame anybody for just thinking it's not worth it and that it's even maybe an affront to them. Um, But I think because that theme is so unique and no other piece of media, I think, let alone a video game has really tried to do that that. At least not in that sort of, in that balance, um, it's kind of special and uh, it's not an experience I want to do again, but Mm. I'm glad that I did because I think that's a, that's a challenging experience that um, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know if it's going to make me a better person or make me think about the world better or whatever, Uh, but it's unique in a way that I think is really special. And um, I think they knew going in, it was going to get some of these reactions and they did it anyway, which maybe they're being, being trolls and being decks part of it. Right. But part of it too, I think is Mm. also, Thinking that this was an important point to make um, about the unavoidability of trauma, and that loving someone and caring about them means um, allowing yourself to be immersed in that as well, and not only taking the good times. Mm. Do you think?
0: Do you think that um, that we can think about this in in regards to like empathy and the limits of empathy or the pitfalls of empathy? Versus like something that Bloom argues in his book against empathy for rational compassion and that our inability to um, let go of the sort of immersion of trauma through the eyes of these characters demonstrates to us one the power of empathy but also signals to us some of the limits of our inability to example um, fully uh, fully rationalize with Abby, but because we're so bought into the Ellie Joel storyline, that the reason that we never fully root for Abby uh, to win and that we actually tried to let Ellie kill us. Um, It's not a limitation of the game, but it actually shows us a sort of like limitation of our own rational capacities because we are just empathically geared. And when we let empathy be the guiding immersive factor that uh, it kind of limits, if you will, our ability to give attention and aid and and rational reflection and make ethical decisions and things like that.
1: Yeah. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I do. I think there's something to that. I, I am curious about it because I'm I love empathy, right? We did a whole episode on this, right? Um, uh, And I think, at the very least, I think there's something to say about how powerful the game is in seducing us by fully causing us to invest psychically, emotionally, libidinally, whatever, into these characters, right? But it's the characters uh, Joel and Ellie, and it's that storyline And then, of course, the characters get brought into that storyline. So Tommy, and then again, Dina, right, in the second game. Like, those are the characters that we care about. We've already cast our lot, so to speak, that we're on their side. And so then what I wonder is, does not the game then cause us to try to pause and and reflect on, wait a second, but who is the goody and who is the baddie, right? Whose side should we be on? Can we see the humanity in Abby? This is something that Bloom talks about, that empathy has certain limits that can lead to evil because it, it can lead to objectification and dehumanization where we just simply justify our anger and our emotion because it's already been directed towards certain individuals or certain individual events and it doesn't allow us to see the larger sort of ethical potential consequences. And so what I wonder is, is we can't can we even pause and try to have rational compassion for Abby's perspective Let's just play devil's advocate here. From Abby's perspective, she's a, 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 what, an old teen when uh, the the first game ends? And all she knows is a crazy fucking dude breaks into this hospital where her father, a doctor, not exactly a sort of like military officer, I mean, I think we're meant to kind of like feel a lot of, quote, goodness or virtue in his being a doctor, right? Because we kind of just value them in our society, right? So he's a doctor. The dude murders him for no apparent reason and then takes this child who was going to be the cure for humanity and gets her, uh, gets the child out of there. So one, the stakes are her father was just murdered for no apparent reason by this psychopath that they've all been told is this crazy asshole that they're trying to uh, eliminate and take, take out. And then two, um, he fucking jeopardizes the possibility of curing humanity. So like... I think we could stop and see, okay, we've got a lot of reasons to side with Abby if we pause rationally and see it from her perspective. But there are like limits of empathy that prevent us from actually even taking that step in cognitively aligning with her.
1: Yeah. And that kind of harkens back to um, the point where I I felt like it was gratuitous for Abby to kill Joel in the way that she did. Right. Because rational compassion only goes so far right when it's very clear that this person's acting on a maxim of not even revenge but gratuitous punishment right um that's hard to have rational compassion for because then that means this person is acting on a a self-consciously evil intention right um whereas ellie for as much terrible shit as she does she doesn't she kills a fucking dog though bro Not not she kills a fucking doesn't matter no i mean she kills a fucking dog she does horrible shit, yeah. but never as primary intention in the way that Abby does with Joel, right? Okay, um, yeah. So you can sort of understand why she does what she does, even if you think better decisions could have been made, right? Which is, I think, yeah. an important difference there. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a huge theme there of uh, considering the dangers of empathy and what and you have to feel all the violence, right? Like the violence in this game is, is crazy, uh, both when yeah. you get killed, you know, when you lose, and when you kill all the people. Like you have to feel bones crunching and screams and yeah. people calling out their friends' names and being freaked out. And when they you set someone on fire with a Molotov cocktail, like they scream bloody murder, right? Yeah. Uh, it makes you feel all those things, which I think is uh is really good from, from like a feeling the um the sort of importance of of the negative role that empathy can play in justifying these kinds of behaviors right that yeah. said if that was the only like guiding theme i think i'd buy into the criticism more because that means they're forcing you to do this stuff like it's not like undertale where you have a choice to spare everybody if you want to and mm. so if there's violence then it's because you chose for it to be that way right uh, it's not an rpg where you can choose to be you know variously good or evil or somewhere in between in different circumstances you're forced to do all these things including the really pivotal moments where it's like abby fighting ellie and stuff like that so i think that does yeah. kind of break the covenant between creator and and gamer um given that you're you know you control this character you're, you're forced to make choices there's a sort of like Kantian thing going on there right about um uh acting on maxims that someone else can possibly consent to right and uh, mm. the gamer doesn't consent to this. And you can break that pact Act. in a tactful way, like in the first game where you build this trust up and then you challenge at the end in this kind of in a way that you expect the person to be able to accept the challenge, give the trust you've built up. And the second game doesn't have that feature, right? It, it breaks that trust at almost every uh, major moment of the game.
0: <coughs> mm. Do you think Do you think that we could say that... that- the typical compact, as you say, between um, or covenant between, like the 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 game designer and the gamer, is one where there's like a, a a a sort of mutual relationship, right? But that this game is more of an auteur. I didn't I didn't I didn't think about this. I didn't know how to describe it, but I feel like this is less um, of a mutual experience and more of an auteur experience. That Neil Druckmann is is much more of a puppet master in this game than than in the typical gaming experience that we are accustomed to. And I think that's part of the reason also that people are kind of a little bit confused about what the point of this game is, but I think it's like an auteur piece of cinematic gaming.
1: Yeah, I think definitely. And that's why I think that the, the cycle of violence and the dangers of empathy and stuff is all obviously a theme, um, but I don't think it's the major one because that I think lends much more credence to the criticisms that have been leveled about the breaking of this covenant between creator and gamer. Um, and if you view it more of as an artier piece, in the sense that um, you know Druckmann and company, it seems to me at least, have this intention of of not fucking with the gamers necessarily. Although it certainly can come across that way. I think if you have a certain uh, come from a certain perspective, or if you're really, really, really bought into this this, this idea of the. Um, the covenant of trust between gamers, I think that art has this, cl- like a clause in the constitution of art that says it's okay to violate these covenants between creator right. and viewer if you do so in a tactful way that respects mm. the viewer and it respects their you know, cognitive faculties and rational faculties and whatever, um, and that ultimately comes out to wanting to make them better in some, hmm. in some you know, relevant way. And lots of art works that way, right? With like purposefully using offensive material to try and challenge someone to help them become more critical and sort of jumpstart them to thought and stuff like that. And sometimes it fails because they don't do a good job. And that's fine. Like we're okay with sometimes failing at that because we want art artists to take risks and not be conservative, right? And so I kind of judge it from that perspective as a they're, they're talking about not just empathy, but the experience of trauma and that you can't love people without also loving their trauma um, and being immersed Mm. in that and dealing with that. And they didn't do that as much in the first game. They did a little bit with with Joel, right? And you fully buy into his trauma um, by eventually even accepting his weird pathological relationship with Ellie where he's basically making her his daughter in a way that's, you understand, but it's very pathological, right? It's definitely Mm. him using her to satisfy his emotional needs. In a way, that's mm. totally common to humanity. So it's not at all like a unique kind of pathology, right? Um, and it just does that. It, like, it turns that up to 11 in this game, right? And multiple with multiple lines of that kind of pathological behavior. I think in order to challenge us and to have us come out of this and say, maybe you didn't enjoy that experience in the way you normally expect to enjoy games. And maybe we broke the covenant with you by sort of forcing you to do things you didn't want to do. Um, but we think it was worth it. When we create in the game, we put a lot of uh, effort and heart into it, and we think that this is a great story that will hopefully leave you with some reflection that can make you better in the end. And I think the fact that we're even talking about it right now in this way, as this super important piece of storytelling, whatever the reason is why, it clearly is. We just got to figure out how it is, right? Um, Mm -hmm. the fact that we're trying to figure out how it's this important piece of storytelling, I think is evidence of the fact they succeeded. Not universally, Mm. but I think they knew they weren't going to succeed universally given how much of a challenge it was going to be to its audience. So yeah, I think it was ultimately a masterpiece and successful for those reasons, even though I don't expect that to be widely recognized. Do
0: you think that... So it's a masterpiece, it's successful... But that it's also a tad irresponsible.
1: Totally. But in because, the same way, yeah. we, we allow art to be that way.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. And so it's not a judgment to say it's irresponsible. It's more of just a, an empirical description.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a judgment in the sense that it's an empirical description, right? But it's not exactly. a sort of um, it's not a prescriptive judgment. Like yes. you shouldn't have done this kind of judgment, right? Um, yeah, yeah, what do you think about that in terms of like you know are much more immersed in like avant-garde film and art? Do you think that there's that this, there's this 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 sort of clause exists that I'm talking about between creator and audience in terms of being more allowed or like permissible to um, break these covenants in a way that we wouldn't normally allow in other domains?
0: Yeah, see, here's the problem. I'm not a gamer, and so I'm not immersed in that covenant, that unspoken covenant, or maybe it's not even unspoken. Maybe it is quite explicit. To me, I don't think the artist owes us anything and that it's actually wonderful to lay ourselves, to almost prostrate ourselves at the feet of the artist to see what kind of... um, relation we can have with them in our mutual experience and so for me i enjoy maybe kind of like similarly what you said earlier i enjoy quote being fucked with i enjoy the fact that i'm being manipulated in these ways because for me it causes me to reflect and to think and it also causes me to really admire the balls right (laughs) to admire the creative output to admire somebody who does that and maybe it's because i view myself as a creator who wants to create challenging and important things to to just kind of buck, if you will, the trends of mimetic serial repetition and reproduction of the, the same shit that we're always fed. And I like having my expectations subverted because I do think there's a sense of entitlement, especially in this day and age, and I don't mean this in like the Zoomers or Millennials were entitled sort of argument, but it's more of a, um, a an entitlement of advertising and consumerism that's fed to us through what I've talked about it before, the philosophy of Byung-Chul Han, this idea of pure positivity that we're just fed constantly more of what we want. The algorithms are just feeding us what we want, what we want, what we want, and so there's really a um, uh, a diminishing of an encounter with otherness of that which is something that makes us uncomfortable. That's something that we don't want. That's something that we don't think that we might want and so we kind of just foreclose any possibility of encountering an other or uh, foreclose the possibility of an event we might even say with a capital E and so I think that for me I enjoy the fact that Druckmann and his team in a way maybe with a small e kind of created a gaming event right? Where we encounter the nastiness of human connection, of human trauma, of the limits of empathy, of cycles of violence, of figuring out how we invest our emotions. Should we align with this group? Can we see from the other side? Can we see the humanity in Abby? Is she just a monster? Can we understand why she might have become a monster? Um, Was that poorly executed? Um, Whatever. I think there's something that we can all learn by affirming this content and affirming the artistic vision and then productively working from that affirmation. And so for me, that's why I really, really enjoy this game.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I totally would expect you to love it for exactly those reasons. Uh, (laughs) I think you're probably, of anybody, the most willing to give the artist complete 100% leeway to do whatever they want to fuck with you. Um, Yes. And you'll just survive and you'll be fine. (laughs) Um, Yes. But yeah, certainly... And it's hard...
0: And it's hard for me because I, I don't I I am not I do this also with like like acting, right? Mm-hmm. So like I'm I'm in an I'm in an acting studio and I will choose scenes that are fucking brutal, that fuck with me, that take me to places that are deep and dark and scary. And I'm talking like the darkest of the darkest things. And for me, I enjoy being able to explore those domains, but not everybody does. And, and it's not always good to subject other people to those things. and yeah, especially and if you don't
1: sort of advertise that in the first place, which I know has been some of the exactly. backlash too, is that this was not in any way um, advertised to be the case. Which Well, and I, I think the trailer
0: the, – or well, the trailer even lied. From, I think the trailer actually has Joel saying a line – that Joel doesn't say in the game because he's dead by the time that line is delivered. And it's actually, um, another character. I think it's Tommy maybe, or somebody else that says that line. And it's like, and it makes you think that Joel is going to be there till the end. Yeah, right. Which, which is so a like,
1: misdirection to make you not think that Joel's dead in the beginning of the right. game. Right. Which I understand. Right. Cause you don't want to give up that, that, you know, shocking thing, which even I was like, he, they're not really going to kill him. Right. Like this is fucking Joel. We're talking about, um, right so yeah I get that but at the same time it makes you understand why people can feel misdirected and like you know I think it's the case I'm not a huge gamer but I think I'm more of a gamer than you are and it does seem to me like there's this you know video games I think are just getting into that period where they're it's okay to consider them as and judge them as pieces of art like in the last you know 8 to 10 years and films it seems like since they've been that way for you know a, a century that you can do things in film and take risks with your audience and challenge them and misdirect them in ways and they'll kind of keep with you, right? In a way, because it's expected as part of the medium where video games haven't, right? They're, they're just getting to the crest or they're just cresting at the period of consider us as art, right? And so the great storytelling games like Last of Us and Red Dead Redemption and God of War and stuff like that, They give you the catharsis at the end, right? Mm -hmm. They're great storytelling in the classic Aristotelian sense where they're going to give you that cathartic ending. It's going to, even when it's tragic, it's going to make you sort of expunge that energy out that you've built up through identifying with the characters. And this game just says, fuck no, we're not going to do it. (laughs) They do a little bit at the end. I think that um, the last scene with Joel, even as much as it kills you because they didn't get to flesh out that forgiveness at least it gave you that right mm. give you a morsel of it but then everything else in the game is just like fuck you you don't get catharsis and that can feel insulting and degrading and like you're being used and i understand if people feel that way they're totally justified to feel that way it really just comes down to and this could be the legacy of the game right does this allow future big budget games to take risks and not feel mm. like they have to do things to satisfy their audience in order to exist right films have that right music has that tv even kind of in some ways has that um video games don't yet and maybe the legacy of this game will be that it now allows for that to be the case which would be a great thing i think because it allows for a great diversity of storytelling
0: Mm. yeah that's really interesting that i mean if more video games are of this um if they're intellectually interesting if they're emotionally um seductive uh, like i think that games are going to be one of the most if not the most powerful art form for the next couple of decades if they if they continue to do this because um because the immersion is so much more impactful Mm -hmm. and it's so much more more total and full than even like a dunkirk um So absolutely, I'm super curious. Like, so after I played this game, I wanted more, and I actually played the other Druckman masterpiece, Uncharted Four. Have you played Uncharted Four, dude?
1: It's such a great game. Oh my
0: god, (laughs) oh my god, that's my favorite game that I've ever played in my life. Wait, like, have you played the the first three? I played. So after I played Uncharted Four. I then played Uncharted three, and then I played Uncharted two, and then I only played like the first hour of Uncharted two, and I was like, "All right, I got to get out of my beanbag chair and get back to my life now."
1: <laughs> oh, dude, I wish um, you had done it the reverse. I did the I did it in order. Uh, I bought the first three in like a pack um, that came together. That's what I have. Yeah, yeah, I have that too. Yeah, the collection. But I just but the yeah four I ran is out. So of steam, much though. more impactful if you already have this history of these characters. But you still loved it, so that's great. Oh dude, I to me it
0: was it was still the best game the most no I'm not going to say the best game. I it was the most fun game I've ever played. Um I I was so into it. The gameplay is so smooth. I think the story is so fun and interesting. But again, it's a Druckmann story, so there's all that family shit and whatnot. But you do get the catharsis at the end, right? It's yeah. like the perfect res- resolution. And even though I didn't play the first 3 games and so I didn't spend all the time with with Nathan Drake and what's his wife's name? Um,
1: i forget it's been too many
0: years (laughs) yeah but but like i didn't spend all the time with them or with sully you know the kind of like mentor dude i i i knew about it a little bit because i i periodically even when i don't play games i kind of like to watch you know uh like what are the best games that are out and what are the best games ever made and stuff i just know that i love them too much so i have to like stay away from them because i would just be a total fucking gamer um but so i knew about them right so i was already kind of a little bit aware of how cool and witty he is and and i was rooting i was rooting for him and for them and i i still thought it was fucking amazing
1: oh that's awesome dude yeah i love that game you know what you know you're probably gonna take a break for a while before you get back into video games but the next one you should play is red dead redemption 2
0: okay so i started it my problem is is the open world games i don't love as much uh, i prefer okay. i prefer the more narrative driven games now with that said Uh, so I did I started to play Red Red Dead Redemption 2 and I had previously played a little of Red Dead Redemption but it's almost like there's too much freedom you know and I want I want somebody like if I want to just sit there mindlessly for 10 hours I can do it and just do all these side missions and uh, and fuck around but I, I like the narrative elements of the two Druckmann games that I mentioned but with that said I played God of War now I think the new God of War I think there are two ways that you can play the new God of War. You can either just follow the mission straight through, mm-hmm. or you can do the more open-world stuff, because it does have the possibility of the open-world stuff. But but when you just do the narrative... you I know mean, you can do that with Red Dead Redemption 2, but it's almost a little more open than God of War. God of War, I think the story is a little bit more compact. And I fucking really got into that game as well. I thought that was excellent. So... And it's a little bit, like I said, it's a little bit more open world. But I just really followed the narrative storyline. And I didn't fuck around on side missions and things like that.
1: Yeah, I get that. And, and Red Dead Redemption 2 is a huge world, right? But you you can just follow the main story if you want. So next time you have, like, two or three weeks of freedom, okay, give it a try on my recommendation. The story I'm not even fantastic. kidding, bro. I unplugged
0: my PlayStation. I put it in its bag. It's away in a corner. <laughs> I... I took my television, it is under my desk in my room, hidden away, so I don't even have access to it. Like, I could obviously plug it all back in, but I'd have to go through steps in order to do that, and then hopefully, like, halfway through, I'll be like, do you really want to do this, Austin? Do you really want to do this? So, I've had to take away my addiction.
1: Yeah, no, man, it's, it's, it's too much during the semester.
0: I know!
1: But then uh, we're home yeah, all one, the time, so it's so hard not to.
0: Oh, yeah, like even right now, I can look down to the left and I can see my TV and it's beckoning to me. <laughs> well, yeah, dude, no, I, I love the game. I think it's I think it's excellent. Um, do you think there's going to be a third?
1: I don't know. I mean, I guess it all depends if, if Druckmann and company are burnt out on it after this whole experience and some of the backlash and if they just want to move on and do their own a different thing now. Because uh, they probably could, right? What would it be like what? Dina's Dina's kid grows up and Ellie's like 40 and Dina's kid goes to look for Ellie or something and then gets in some hijinks? I don't know. Yeah, it could
0: be. What would... Fuck, I don't even know. Yeah, it, it would definitely have something to do with that. Yeah, that, that could be good. A kind of reversal then. Maybe, maybe Ellie becomes hardened. Uh... And she becomes more like the Joel. I, or you know what? Fuck it. Neil Druckmann and them are so fucked up. They're gonna kill the kid. Then Ellie's gonna get sucked back into it, and then she's gonna get pulled back in, and that's what's gonna happen. I or Dina. Think,
1: or she, I don't think they could do that again. They couldn't do the Ellie revenge tour again. It would have to be her <laughs> as, a, as a secondary character, being old and you know, you think? not old and wise, but old and like beaten down. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm, I'm gonna say they're probably not gonna do it. But then maybe the money comes calling and they decide to do it. Who knows?
0: Yeah, true that, man. True that. Well, sweet. Let's go ahead and wrap that up there. Yeah?
1: Yeah, yeah. All right. So you know what we got to do before we get out of here. And that's the sticky leaves segment of the show. This is the part of the podcast where one of us talks about what's bringing us meaning in a potentially meaningless universe. So after you play Last of Us, you don't believe in the goodness of humanity or the goodness of the world or the goodness of anything anymore. What still is bringing you a little bit of satisfaction, Austin?
0: Well, it's bringing me satisfaction, but it might be viewed as some sort of psychological abuse by many because I'm going to talk about two plays that I have recently revisited that I absolutely love. And they are brutal as fuck. (laughs) So... Um, really, the macro of my sticky leaves is reading plays is amazing, and I think so many people um, we skip out on that. And you know, people read novels, read literature, um, and then obviously you read a lot of nonfiction. But I don't think as many people just sit down unless they're really into theater. I don't think many people just read through plays as though it's. A piece of literature on its own that you can just kind of enjoy and and consume. And I want to encourage people to check out plays for for a couple of reasons. One, they're generally much shorter than a novel. Well, not generally. They're always much shorter (laughs) than a novel because they're intended for a stage production. So uh, a 60-page script is going to end up being like a two-hour play, right? So they're 60 pages, uh, maybe 100 pages for some sort of crazy fucking old Russian thing that's probably fantastic, by the way. Um, you know, but uh, uh, like three sisters or something like that. Um, but like but but even still, most of them are going to be under that like 80 page, 70 page limit. So there's you can bang them out in a night. Right, Or you can bang them out in two days Generally you could bang them out in one sitting Also because when you read them They play out much faster than they do on a stage production Because you're not doing all the the silence Between the speaking and all the moving across the stage And all the Mm. switching of stage And there's no intermission So you can actually read these things And you get a really nice pace that you can read them at Which makes them flow really quickly And I think that's kind of great So you get this really lovely story And this really compact and dense um, theatrical form The other reason is because I think it really excites the imagination, right? Because you know that this is intended for the stage, so you get the opportunity to basically be the director. You're the director of the play. Now, you can obviously do that, and you do do that with a novel, but there's almost this more active participation, I feel like, because there are stage directions, and because we're already primed to viewing this as a performance. And so you become like the director of the play in your own mind. And if you're a visual person in particular, like I am, when you close your eyes, I I visualize everything and almost like to the cinematic level, then it becomes that this thing just comes to life for you even more. (laughs) So I would really encourage people, read some plays, right? Now, I will recommend one play and then I will half-heartedly recommend another play or let's say I will recommend with intense qualification another play for people to start. First one, I will say, is a play called Closer. Have you ever read or seen the play or seen the film Closer?
1: Not unless it's based on Joy Division album.
0: No, it is not. It was a movie. Well, so it's a play first, but it was adapted into a movie. And the movie had Julia Roberts, Natalie Portman, Jude Law, and Clive Owen. Does that ring a bell? Maybe. Okay. What was the plot? Well, so the plot of... And and, and it's a pretty damn accurate adaptation of uh, of the screenplay. Um, Fun fact, the original run of the play actually starred Clive Owen as well, but he was playing the other male lead. So interesting. Um, So there are four characters, Anna, Alice, Larry, and Dan. Um, And basically, it's about them all uh, fucking each other and leaving each other and hating each other and desiring each other and being dissatisfied with love, etc., etc. It's not a happy play, um, but it is an extremely intense play about desire and dissatisfaction and uh, human relationships and things like that.
1: Is this ringing a bell? Yeah, I just looked it up at INDB. I remember it now. Natalie really yeah. Portman with the pink uh, wig, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, she has a really famous line in it that is that has been memed where she says something like, um, lying is the most fun a girl can have with her clothes on. <laughs> um so, uh, but yeah, uh but so and she's a stripper, and that's why she says it at one point. Um but anyway, um it's uh it's a really impactful play. It's a really powerful play. It's pretty fucked up, you know. People are emotionally it's a, it's an emotional roller coaster, it's super intense, but <laughs> It's. I think it's so amazing, and I recently reread it, and I would even say watch the movie. I think the movie is pretty good. I think the play is better just because you become your own director, and I think if you see the stage version, I think it's better too. Because again, I'm just a, a theater homer. Um, but <laughs> if you if you do watch the film, I would recommend watching the film on this. Um, the second play I'm going to talk about is one that I don't really recommend for people to read unless you are comfortable with shock art right? Um, it's a play called Stitching by a playwright named Anthony Nielsen. Now I saw this play in 2013 because I actually helped uh, uh, as part of like doing some production work on it, like doing some stage man, or not stage man, uh, some building of the stage and like helping with, uh, with getting the, the, the word out there and stuff like that because it was produced by and it was put on by um, a theater company that was associated with the acting school where I was training when I was in Scotland. And uh, one of my one of my best friends at the time, a guy named Tom Moriarty, he was starring in this play as the main character. And uh, Stu is the main character's name. And then, uh, interestingly enough, I think the girls, the lead girl's name is Abby. Uh, not interestingly enough, but you know, the, the name keeps coming up. Um, <laughs> but it's a two it's a two hander, and it's uh, it's the this story about this couple. And I don't want to spoil too much in case people read it because it it's a shock play. Um, and you need to not be spoiled. But I will say that it is so shocking that people literally walked out when it first premiered. And Anthony Nielsen, the dire- the director, I'm sorry, the playwright, he he had to go on like a sort of like defense tour of kind of like justifying why he wrote this fucking shocking play the way that he did. And but what I will say is it's a it's a two hander. So it's a story about this couple, and they're going through. They're 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 kind of um in a very tense relationship. They've cheated on each other in the past, but it just turns out uh, both of them have. They both fucked around, Um, but they're trying to work through things and um, they're using, you know, different like psychological techniques where they're like writing things down to each other and then trying to like write to communicate rather than just arguing verbally. And they have all these approaches that they're trying to employ to help them to navigate through their communication problems. And they have definite fucking communication problems. Um, But we open the play with her Uh, being pregnant and them trying to decide whether or not they're going to keep the baby, right? And because they have communication problems, they can't even decide, like, they can't even Articulate what they want. So the opening scene, you know, it's kind of like, "What do you want?" Well, I don't know what I want. It's not about what I want. It's what the woman wants, and she's like, "But yeah, but I don't know what I want." And then she's like, "But what do you want?" And he's like, "I don't know." And then then they're like, "Well, maybe we can figure out what we don't want." And if we figure out what we don't want, then what will be left over is what we want. And then they're like, "Well, I don't even know what I don't want." And then it's back and forth, and then it turns into an argument, this kind of attack defend kind of argument, and then the play kind of rolls on from there. And it gets really fucking intense and really explicit. And there's um, some sexual mutilation shit that goes on. Uh, yeah. So, like, that's what I mean when I say it's fucked up. I'm talking shock shit. Okay. And the play is called Stitching. So I'll let you kind of piece together how sexual mutilation, but also relationship stitching, might kind of come in. Just mm. for people, I'm telling you, it, this is not this is not comfortable material. But I still think it's really interesting and I reread it this past or the week before last. And the reason I actually mentioned even during the main segment about the acting thing is I'm a part of an acting studio here in town and uh, we're doing a scene from this play and um, it was very difficult for my scene partner um, who agreed and who read the play beforehand and, and, and was challenged and we both talked about this that we wanted to do this but it was very difficult to kind of do one of the scenes that we did which was probably one of the tamer scenes in the play to be honest but it's still so so we did that scene actually where um where uh where she's just like you know i'm pregnant and they got to figure out what they're going to do with it that scene but there's so many layers of of sort of um potential traumatic material there that it was very it was a very difficult and raw scene to do so um yeah so it it's fucking intense, so I'm just warning people. So if you're gonna check it out, if you're into that sort of thing, I would I would say have a go. But I'm just all the warnings that I can give because it's really fucked up. Um, but closer, it's fucked up too. But I still think it's something that people should should be able to uh, indulge, and I think it kind of explores some interesting themes about relationships and love and desire and incommensurable um, incommensurable partnerships things like that. So, um, yeah. But big takeaway is read plays, man. Plays are fucking great. Go to like your bookstore, go online and go look at the theater section and read, you know, just like little synopses on the back and they're super thin. You can buy like a handful of them. Go get some fucking plays, read them. They're fantastic. As a matter of fact, as soon as we finish recording this, I'm going to go to a bookstore and I'm going to go get some plays myself. So,
1: <laughs> yeah. All right, two questions. Uh, yeah. One, do you think... Because I'm thinking for myself, I think the last time I read a play, to read it, was high school reading Shakespeare plays? High school. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. And it's probably the case for most people, right? Reading plays isn't a a commonplace thing. Um, So I'm wondering, do you think part of the reason, part of the experience of reading a play is having acted in them, you can do this, be your own director thing in a natural way where for maybe other people, it's going to... Be dry because you just have dialogue and like scene cues or whatever.
0: I have an extra layer beyond the director layer, which is that I can view myself in the role as well. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and so that's another element that does add like a layer of enjoyment for me. So when I'm reading closer, I can imagine if I were Larry or if I were Dan and I'm acting off of Anna or I'm acting off of Alice in these scenes because I know the themes of these scenes. I understand how to analyze a text and find what the tasks are and what the stakes are and, and motivations. And, I, and I, can, I can put myself into it. And I think that's an extra layer, yes. But I also think... People read novels and they do that anyway because one of the things that people always say when they get frustrated about adaptations of great stories is that it wasn't how I pictured it, right? They don't like the cinematic adaptation because that's not how the character looked in my mind or that's not how the landscape was in my mind. My imagination was able to create so much more. I think that if we practice again reading is a practice if we practice i think that that the average person who enjoys literature who enjoys novels who has that kind of pictorial mind i think that they can find great enjoyment by reading plays
1: yeah i think the practice thing is really crucial there because you know people say oh they, they develop this headcanon around literature right and then they um, are bummed when a film adaptation doesn't really fit their head canon, right? So they engage this imaginative way with the world. But then in the novel, the ingredients are given there for you, right? And so you kind of do the cooking, but the ingredients were already bought and put together for you. Whereas I imagine in a play, you got to kind of go buy the ingredients too, right? Because you're given yeah, much yeah. less to work with. Yeah, so you, absolutely. Practicing that, at it true. and developing that as a habit seems like a, a really necessary thing. Yeah, the most you'll get in
0: in some stage directions are like dimly lit stage, uh Abby stands, you know, down center, uh lights come up, uh she's wearing all black.
1: <laughs> you know, it's nice or and straightforward though at least.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's it. They're very lean. And then and then even if they are describing they're like interior home Thursday. And that's it. It's not they're inside this uh this 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 bespoke cabin there's a fire burning you know they're eating a freshly made stew uh there's a light breeze that's coming through an open window the curtain gu- uh, the curtain is caught in the gust and uh so and so's hair fall- you know that like that shit is completely absent oh, meant to when that. you're reading a play <laughs> yeah yeah the, all of that is absent it, so it's all you And that's why I think if you enjoy theater and if you've seen a lot of shows, but I think even if you have a kind of cinematic mind, when someone says, like, interior Thursday, um, Abby and Stu sitting at a desk, and that's all you need, to, or sitting at a table, and that's all you get, your imagination can fill in, are they in a city, are they in a suburb? Uh, Is there a tablecloth on this table? Is it, like, laminate, or is it, like, cloth? Um, uh, is it a big kitchen, small kitchen? Are they at an, at a, at an island? Are they sitting? And all of that is from your experience and how you kind of feel. And, and there is no, you need to get it right necessarily. It's much more of a, a a freedom to play and create. And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoy about reading plays too.
1: Yeah. That seems to be the advantage over novels is the ability to kind of co-author in that way. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah, so What's your second question?
1: The second question was, so I know you recommend closer or something maybe people would enjoy with the without the qualification of stitching. Is there maybe yep. a play out there that you think would be the best for virgins of reading plays? The one to get you uh, hooked. I,
0: yeah, it's so hard for me because I uh, I don't know off the top of my head if I could pull one. I mean, there there are so there are so many classics that you could probably get into. I mean, you could read Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman. You could read The Crucible. You could read All My Sons. Those are like the classics that we first teach uh, when you're in school. You could read Tennessee Williams, um, another really well-known American playwright. Those people would probably be very good starting points. So Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams. Um, You can read a guy uh, named Tom Stoppard. Um, You can read Edward Albee. Um, Those people are kind of again the the sort of standards that that people run to um, so yeah, so I would I would say that that that's kind of something you could look into but in terms of an individual play, I mean maybe the Arthur Miller like death of a salesman, all my sons those those are really good introductions.
1: Yeah, it's good recommendations. it's good to work with.
0: Yeah 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 and they're great they're great. Um, I think Arthur Miller, Arthur Miller, didn't he, wasn't he married to Marilyn Monroe? Um, or date her or something. Um, but the, the thing with the Miller plays is they're just great stories of, um, of American life too, you know? So, um, there are cinematic adaptations of them as well, but I would say try to, try to read the play. Um, yeah. And go to that source
1: text always.
0: Yeah, Definitely. 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 So yeah, Miller, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Stoppard. I think it's Harold Pinter wrote a play called like The Dumb Waiter. That's really good. Those are you know more more easily accessible. Closer's a lit, a little bit grittier. Um, I I personally really like a, a playwright by the name of Neil Labute. Um He was one of David Mamet's kind of proteges. David Mamet's another really kind of influential playwright that people could read. His plays are. They're a little bit punchier. The dialogue isn't flowery. They're kind of lean and stripped back even more so than a play like Arthur Miller's where the dialogue is going to be a little bit more um, robust, you might say. Uh, David Mamet's a little bit more straightforward. Neil Labute is kind of kind of like that. He, he did a great play that I absolutely fucking love called The Shape of Things um, that was also made into a film that has uh, Paul Rudd and Rachel Weisz in it that is also kind of fucked up um, but fucked up in a, in a different way. But uh, The Shape of Things is a really good play that you could read if you're interested in kind of some like fucked up kind of theater stuff. Um, and that's by Neil LeBute. I really like him. So, yeah, um, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, but, yeah, definitely you could start with like the Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams kind of stuff. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But read plays, man. I love them. They're great. And they make me happy. <laughs> and, I for, and I forget about reading them sometimes because I love the theater so much. Um, but, you know, during the lockdown, there aren't that many performances going on and they're all socially distanced, at least here. Uh, they're they're at least starting to open up again, and, but they're socially distanced. And so there aren't that many tickets. And so you got to get right right in, at the front of the queue if you're going to get tickets, because like an 800 theater, 800 seat theater now has only like 200 seats that they're giving out or. Uh, what was like a 150 seat theater is now only doing like you know 30 to 50 seats so um a lot of shows are selling out really quickly here anyway and then of course wherever you are in the world they might not even be happening at all so in lieu of that you can read some plays
1: not happening here man i've i've been to more plays since i moved to the south um than any other point in my life just because easy access but then the pandemic ruined all that so Mm -hmm. I was trying to become more like you, dude. I was trying to uh imitasio Austin-o. But uh, the world was against me. Fucking coronavirus. No. All right.
0: I say we go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Yeah, man? Yeah, yeah. Sweet. Um, thank you so much for listening. If you got any questions, anything you want to contribute, you can always email us, owls at dawnpodcast at com. You can hit us up on Twitter, owls underscore at underscore dawn. Uh, as Troy said, we've got a Patreon, patreon.com slash owlsatdawn, if you want to kick us a little bit of support, and I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything
1: else you want to contribute here, Troy. Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das Marykonski. Daspadania,